Welcome to Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. On the show, our team of industry experts interviews contingency fee attorneys. You will discover everything from how they got started to the secrets of their success and what's working in today's marketplace. And now, here's the Case Closed Podcast. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're having another session of the Case Closed Podcast, and we have David Zapatel here today. From South Florida, David, tell the audience where you practice and the specifics of your practice. Yeah, thank you, Max. David Zapatel. I've actually been practicing strictly personal injury, significant personal injury law for 32 years now. I've been uh, a board certified civil trial lawyer for 25 of those years. Still am. And um, I'm in Delray Beach, Florida. It's sunny, a little hot right now, but um, sitting right by the beach. I I built a beautiful home here near the beach. My office is about a mile away. Um, I have a good lifestyle. Those folks that live in this town have a good lifestyle, many of which have been clients over the years. And uh, I'm involved in the community to a large degree. And I I try to help people in any way I can. That's kind of my mantra. So, uh, tell me the types of cases you handle. Um, I, I handle significant cases. So unfortunately, they're bad. It's people losing relatives um, to any number of negligent acts or scenarios, whether it's a truck accident or they're a pedestrian or medical malpractice. I end up um, handling very significant cases and very bad injuries, amputation cases, horrible things. Uh, do you do product cases? Um, I've shied away from product cases. I've, I've handled a few in my career, but it's, it's not one of my specialties. Um, occasionally, I'll bring in co-counsel when I have a significant product case. What is the best advice you've gotten in life and from whom did it come? Well, this is a weird one, but um, I semi-retired with my wife and children to Santa Fe, New Mexico when I was in my late 30s because I had done very, very well in law. Um, wasn't sure what the next chapter was. We were living in Santa Fe and I was developing houses. I still had a practice in Boca Raton, Florida at that time, and my partners were running it. And a very wise um, and gentlemanly real estate agent that put us on House Hunters, the national show, gave me the advice, don't quit your day job. And you know what? That was probably five years before the real estate collapse. I had a whole bunch of money in real estate. And thank goodness I didn't get rid of my day job and ended up coming back to Florida and working full time. So overall, that's probably one of the more sage comments that someone made to me. Uh, without giving anything that's covered by a confidentiality agreement, what is the largest award you've had? Well, an aggregate award um, with attorney's fees. It was a bad faith case. It is confidential. The aggregate number was somewhere around $22 million. Have you ever had a famous person case? In fact, I represent, it's my sideline. So about 5% of my time, 2 to 5% any given month, Um, I do represent some celebrities. I represent some athletes. Um, This started somehow early in my career where I just met some people. And a lot of these things are little hourly things or where I'm fixing a problem. Some do turn into litigation, but um, each one of them, I'm bound by strict confidentiality. Oh, sure. 
Oh, yeah. Even though I'm retired, I, I know the rules. Still. <laughs> yeah, I've rep- I've had the the good fortune to represent very interesting folks, both business people that remain confidential, um, athletes, celebrities, musicians. I've I've been very very fortunate in my career. What is the most frustrating thing about practicing law today? Several things there, and they all dovetail together. Um, One is the lack of professionalism, and not so much with lawyers, but some of the newer lawyers, um, they're not being mentored properly, or they're trying to go out and do more than what they should be doing, particularly with social media and everything else. I think that lack of professionalism, which is combined with lack of experience, I think insurance companies, when I'm dealing with adjusters, Certainly, the quality of adjuster and their knowledge has has declined significantly throughout my career. And it it becomes frustrating because they don't understand where you're coming from um, because they just don't understand either their job or the facts or whatever the case may be. That that becomes frustrating. So how many of your brethren in the plaintiff's bar have investigated the possibility of either civil theft or RICO arising out of the changes that were recently passed that uh, put, for the first time, some onus upon uh, property and liability adjusters? Yeah, so um, I haven't heard of anybody looking into those particular claims. I have been on quite a few Zooms with, with some of the the top folks that do plaintiff's law in the state, we're all part of the same organization. And we've talked about a lot of these new changes in the law that occurred on March 24th of this year, 2023. Um, and we, we've discussed a lot of these issues. I, I haven't um, heard any anybody bring up those, those specific. Uh, so are you part of Taos? You know, Nick Martinez? I know who Nick Martinez is. Yeah. His first case was against me. When he yeah. came out of med school and lost, kicked my ass. <laughs> Great guy. He li- actually lives down there. I should introduce you because his fiance runs a, a radio show that's listened to by all the elite in uh, Palm Beach, um, Broward, and uh, Dade County, several hundred thousand Richie Riches. I'll get you afterwards. <laughs> um, well, are you aware that there is a model for the Rico play? that arose in the amendments to the work comp statute in the early 2000s? No, no, I never practiced uh, um, in the work comp realm, and I actually never never realized there were those those types of claims. Yeah, in that statute, if an adjuster in a work comp case did something fraudulent, it would give rise to criminal liability, which means it would give rise to civil RICO liability. Right. So there's a model out there for you all that has existed for 20 years Right. that uh, could assist you because you, you need the law, I think, is going to have the opposite effect of what DeSantis said it would. And it's just going to breed more delays, delays and delays. Well, you know, and that's an interesting point. And, you know, I will point out, though, as a practitioner in the trenches every day um, since that's been passed, 
the insurance companies and defense bar are still a little bit leery and concerned at some of these changes, particularly the bad faith change extending this out, because they feel like maybe it puts more of an onus on them ultimately. And what I'm finding since our firm and many firms have have filed suit on these cases to expedite them and so forth, is the carriers right now are saying, okay, if you filed before that deadline, we're paying your case and we're resolving this case. So I've, I've seen a flurry of activity, positive activity in proper evaluation of cases quickly so far. Now, does that change and do exactly what you said, delay, delay? down the road probably you know that was that was one of the you know well i mean the, the reality is what it, there were 31,000 cases filed the week before the statute coming into effect i mean if they don't do it they could never prepare for trial right just like FIGA is going to have to do it when uh, uh uh like with upc going down FIGA is in trouble uh starting in september because they have 100,000 claims they're not reinsured enough. Right. No, there's, there's uh yeah, we'll see where, where everything goes. You know, I, I feel bad because this new law, what most people don't realize about this that I think is really important is not only is it hurting the accident victim where when I represent somebody in a very horrible accident, and I've had this happen already where an insurance company just, they're like, we have 90 days. We're not even going to give you the disclosure of the policy limits for 30 pursuant to that statute. We're just going to sit on our hands and do whatever we can do because the new statute entitles us to do so. Well, guess who this is bad for? Also, the at-fault driver, not just my client, the victim, because what do I have to do to protect my client? I have to sue that person right away and get this this time rolling, I need to get affidavits from that person. I need to take their statement at bare minimum, if not deposition, to find out what kind of assets they have. I need to dig deep into that person that the insurance company has an obligation to protect, but they're going to delay forcing us to do it quickly and arbitrarily. So it's hurting everybody because the insured now is exposed personally and more quickly and has to go through a, a lot more because the insurance company will just delay. So it's hurting everybody in Florida, not just accident victims, which is really a, a bad, bad thing. The only folks it's helping are big insurance companies. Yeah. Well, the defense bar, because they're getting a lawsuit earlier, so they get defended earlier. Oh, they're so inundated right now. I've got friends on the defense side that are just crying. They can't keep up. And they're like public defenders for the first time, but they're getting paid. Yeah, they literally can't keep up. And, you know, so they're either trying to settle cases or they're whatever, but it's it's too much. They And they know it's overreaching too. There's some aspects of this bill. There's no way that um, once we go to trial and these things come up, there's no way to reconcile how they work in trial because current rules combined with these new laws are completely at odds. A, a prime example, if anyone's interested, is when you submit medical bills from your client in trial, traditionally you're submitting the gross medical bills, okay? Um, now, naturally, people have been trying to chip away at that for years. Well, this new law says, oh, no, no, the defense is now um, what Medicare pays is a reasonable and necessary charge. 
not what this surgeon is charging. So just to throw out an example of two-level neck surgery, surgeon charges $100,000, Medicare pays $19,000, they get to argue 19. Here's the problem with that. They can't go to trial and say Medicare. So who's recommending 19? Where does that come from? They have nowhere to draw that from, even though the statute says it. Why can't they say Medicare is, from this perspective, judicial notice? Because it's in the statute. Because they can't, because first of all, it's debatable um, what the exact number is in terms of codes and this and that. You need expert opinion on it. Where did you draw it from? And you can't say the word Medicare because that's injecting insurance, which is an automatic mistrial. But I don't think it can be automatic mistrial now because of the statute. But let me pose one to you that I came up with an idea that um, might solve the problem or at least ameliorate the problem. No one's come up with it. If you had a third party who would actually loan money to the patient to pay the doc the bill, you don't have a LOP. Correct. Then the question is, what is the reasonable amount for the bill? Because there's not an LOP. The doctor's been paid cash pay. What's the answer to the question there? Does that solve a problem? Um, well, not completely, because they can still argue that it's not reasonable and necessary, but... I think this new statute gives um, the defense the opportunity then to dig into the third party, the relationship. It's a lending company, straight lending company. Right. And then they get. So there's nothing that's going to come up that's going to be untoward. A doctor offers the lender, the lender <laughs> does an underwriting, gives them a rate. Right. So then it's that rate that the lender pays, which is far less. It becomes a a debacle because then does the lender get paid that full amount? And Oh, no, the lender gets paid because it's he'll get paid because he has a contract with the plaintiffs. As soon as that he creates a lien, it goes to the attorney. He'll get paid his full amount. What they can claim in trial is a different thing but he'll get paid the full amount because he has a contract. Well, and that begs the question. So then if the jury gives, gives the, um, the patient, the plaintiff less, then, you know, how do you make up the difference to the lender? That's a big risk. I used to own a funding company, by the way, that did plaintiffs. Oh, no, I, I don't think it's a risk to the lender. The plaintiff is aware up front. The attorney has, is agreeing. There's a lien for X. The attorney can't do the lien. It's not an LOP. So right. he's not in a position to negotiate it. He has to pay it out. And the person who takes the hit is the plaintiff, but at least he got the treatment. Because yeah. from, and tell me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it now, basically you're going to have a hard time getting uninsured people treatment because you can't really do LLPs anymore. Right. So um, that's where attorneys with relationships with physicians and facilities will have an advantage. Because if they know that they've um, been paid historically, they basically won't send an LOP and um, they'll treat the patient and the patient technically still owes the money. That's how we will proceed. And that's how we've been proceeding. Very interesting. You know, John Romano? Yes, of course. Okay. Everyone knows John. Everyone John, knows John. Yeah, John and uh, Nick are friends. And I met John many times over the years through Nick. Yeah. So Rodney Romano, actually, I'll give him a plug. 
I think is one of the better mediators and that's his brother in the state of uh, in the state of Florida. And I just think he does a fantastic job on both sides. And um, I use him whenever he's available. He's always booked up. It's Matrix uh, Mediation in West Palm Beach. Yeah. Well, his kids are now from according to what Nick told me, starting to, you know, John is up. You're a youngin, but we're older than you. Not too much. I just look young, man. I'm, I'm on a, um, I'm on a, uh, I, I bet you I got you beat up. I'm going to be 62 in three weeks. All right. Well, I'm going to be 60 in December. See how those two years are big. Man. <laughs> you'll, you'll fall apart like me in two years. Don't worry. Great. So I know why, but why don't you tell all the listeners why they should hire you versus any other attorney in uh, the South Florida area? Why should they hire you in a big case? Yeah, it's self-evident. and It's what people know that do come to our firm. First of all, you're getting personal attention from someone with every accolade and a whole bunch of experience. And really, that's what you want. And then there's something on top of it. There's this intangible. And I think that's where reputation comes in that not everybody in the in the public knows, but lawyers do. You know, how respected you are. Do the judges listen to what you say? Does opposing counsel respect your opinion when you say, hey, here's why I value this case this way? They do if you've been honest for 32 years and upfront about bad cases and good cases, bad facts and good uh, facts, and you get along with people on a human level. You're friendly with them. You know them. You treat them with respect and kindness, and and they do the same. And you vigorously represent your client, but you're not, you know, a pit bull, like people say, where you're mean to everybody because that does not achieve the- You're right. And that's the young generation lawyers. That's the the billboard generation, too. Everybody's going to be a hard ass and say, this is what I'm going to do. Well, guess what? That anyone does that to me. I'm just like, okay, I get it. But, you know, I'm just going to respond accordingly. And you end up being tougher on those people. And I think it, it works both ways. And I think the practice of law should be a a cordial, friendly thing where people are really resolving disputes in an intelligent, sophisticated way, not not this puffing thing. So for all those reasons, I'm right up there with the top lawyers in the state. I've been board certified for 25 years, all the accolades, and I get great. I pride myself on getting great results for my clients. And I know that I do because I've you know, there are some comparisons out there that I've that I've had throughout the years. And I know that I'm getting fantastic results for my clients. Well, folks, if you're in uh, Palm Beach, Broward or Dade County, and you have a big case. You need to look up Mr. Zapatel and call him immediately. David, stay on. I have a question. for you. Thanks, Max. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and their insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast is led by industry experts who unlock insights from the nation's top contingency fee attorneys. Each week on the show, the guests share how they got started, secrets of their success, and what's working in today's marketplace. Guests on the Case Closed Podcast include successful contingency fee attorneys that will share their secrets so you can close more cases. Tune in each week for a dynamic conversation about winning legal strategies that will grow your business. 